Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Scripture Chronicles. This is the podcast where we explore the unified story of the Bible. I'm Dylan. Joining me, as always, is none other than Corey Howitz himself, fresh out of quarantine. Corey Howitz, how are you doing today? Doing good. You know, I've been uh, sitting around the house for a while, forced to quarantine, although I wasn't sick. But that's another story. Guys, this is the first episode in our journey into Leviticus. And so we have just finished up Exodus. And now we are jumping into the book where most reading plans, those read your Bible in a year sort of things, that the book where those things go to die. Leviticus is usually the place where people get to after they make their resolution. Say, I'm going to read through the Bible in a year. They get through Genesis, lickety split, no problem. Exodus, like they get to the end, they're like, okay, I make it through it, no problem. A little tougher, but still. Leviticus, first three chapters, and that's it. So what we're hoping to do today and then throughout the uh, course of this Leviticus section is actually go through the book and highlight some key themes and ideas that are going to come up later on in the Hebrew Bible and also help you guys to have a firmer grasp of the book as a whole, specifically if you're one of those people I just described and you just can't get through it. I completely sympathize with you and understand. However, be that as it may, Leviticus is one of the most important books in the Torah insofar as it is referenced consistently throughout the rest of the Hebrew Bible. And so aside from Genesis, it might even be one of the most referenced books in the Torah. So with that, let's go ahead and dive into it. So today we're going to be hopefully making it through chapters 1 through 10. Again, if you're new to the podcast, welcome. This is a great time to start in. We are not going to be giving our usual recap. We're just going to jump right into Leviticus. And the reason for that is we just finished up Exodus, did a whole episode on the recap. If you have not listened to that, go back, grab that episode first, listen to it. If you want to go through Exodus first, that's perfectly fine as well. However, this is a great time to start. Anytime we start a new book, great time to pick up the podcast. So let's get right into it. So Leviticus, Corey, tell us a little bit about Leviticus. What are we what are we expecting here? So let's look at the big picture first. And then we'll kind of get back into tying it into Exodus and all that. But big picture book structure, that's a really easy way to get a grasp on the entire book. The entire book of Leviticus is what we'd call a chiasm, meaning the first half of the book and the last half of the book are mere images of each other. And it's all centered around kind of the center chapter, chapter 16, Day of Atonement. That's, again, kind of at the center. And so the first seven chapters are about ritual sacrifices. And then towards the end of Leviticus, chapters 23 to 25, there's ritual feasts. So again, the first section will match up with the last section. And then so after chapters one through seven, you get through the ritual sacrifices. The next section, chapters eight through 10, is talking about the priests. In those few chapters, it's talking about the ordination of the priests. And then the next section after that, chapters 11 through 17, have to do with ritual purity. And then we kind of went a little bit past chapter 16, but chapter 16 is this great center section of the book that has so much meaning. And as Dylan said, Leviticus is quoted so much throughout the rest of the Old Testament. It is alluded to so much in the New Testament as well. I'm convinced that we are not fully understanding the atoning work of Jesus without a good grasp of the definitions of atonement and offerings offered here in Leviticus. Day of Atonement is really huge to the book and to the rest of the Bible. 
But right after the center of the book plays, we go back into the purity laws. And chapters 18 through 20 deal with moral purity. Chapters 21 through 22 deal with priestly qualifications. And then, like I already said, chapters 20 through 25 talk about ritual feasts. So you got three big sections, rituals, priests, and purity laws. And then the end of the book, it kind of sits out of this structure of the chiasm, at least. And chapters 26 and 27 have to do with blessings and curses for obedience, or I guess curses for disobedience, blessings for obedience. And chapter 27 is all about keeping vows that you make. Chapter 26 of Leviticus, quick heads up, is one of the most important chapters to all the rest of Scripture, and especially the Old Testament story. It's a foreshadow of what's to come. But yeah, so there's a big 30,000 foot view of what's going on at Leviticus. And I like to get big structural views so I can have little compartments for things in my mind. I'm kind of a compartmentalized thinker and a, a big picture pattern and structure thinker. And so if you're like me, it should be hopefully really helpful. Dylan, anything to add to this structure of the book? I don't think there's anything that I have to add to the overall structure. Again, if you guys didn't get that, we will be referencing back to this as we go through the book. But again, the book as a whole really does serve to center around kind of it's a mirror on both sides centering around this day of atonement. I do want to highlight that one more time just because that is such a big theme in the book of Leviticus and it will continue to be a big theme all the way, not just through the Hebrew Bible, but we'll get into that even into the New Testament when talking about the work of Christ. So the Day of Atonement is definitely something to keep in mind and to watch out for. In getting into the beginning of the book, we're going to see how all of the various offerings play into the various rituals that God has given to his people to set them apart. And so one big theme that we are going to see consistently throughout the book of Leviticus the book being named after the Levites, the one who were priests, keep in mind. So this is a book that is dedicated to actually going through the various rules and regulations and stipulations for how God is to be worshipped. And the reason why this book exists is because, as the book itself says, God is holy and he wants his people to be holy. So there is something categorically different from every single other thing in life. So that which is ordinary is everything that we experience in our daily lives. And God, on the other hand, God is holy. That is, he is distinct and set apart from that which is ordinary. As a result, he says to his people, you need to be holy. And so in saying that you need to be holy, he's saying they need to be set apart, distinct and different from the other nations. And in order to do that, they need to worship Yahweh in contrast to the other nations who are worshiping their false idols. And so in being holy, there is a specific way in which to approach God, which is laid out here in the book of Leviticus. So I think that's really all I have to say on kind of the structure of the book, what the book is aiming at. But we do also need to cover kind of how this book builds the story. Because again, the major thesis of this podcast is that the Bible is a single unified story. So it is a story, it's unified, and ultimately serves to point to Christ. So, Corey, where do we leave off in Exodus, and how does this fit in? Yeah, that is the question that we should be asking if you're reading through the Bible. At the very last paragraph and last couple lines of Exodus chapter 40, 
we see that the cloud, which is the presence of Yahweh, comes to fill the tabernacle. And after, I don't know how many chapters talking about tabernacle instructions, we're finally like, yes, they did it right. It is finished. But then another problem arises where nobody could go into the tabernacle, not even Moses, which just surprised me because Moses just had um, some amazing encounters with Yahweh, gets to see the back of Yahweh. The more he asks for Yahweh's presence, the more Yahweh comes. Moses has a shining face anytime he goes up to meet with Yahweh. But so this is a really big problem that no one, including Moses, can go into the tabernacle. And so that's why when we get into Leviticus 1.1, it says Yahweh called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. So at the very start, it's like it's the next book after Exodus or something. It's almost like you're supposed to read them back to back as a story. And that's exactly what we're supposed to do. And so we see that Moses still cannot go in in Leviticus, but these instructions, specifically the sacrifices, and then in the next section, the ordaining of the priest, those are these specific instructions that will allow the priest to go into the tabernacle and to serve God. So again, this is the big relation to Exodus. The tabernacle is complete, but there's a big problem. No one can go in. So the book starts. Moses still can't go in, but Yahweh is going to give him instructions from the inside, talking to Moses on the outside. But that kind of brings up another big question, because we're going to be talking about priests. And there's another great big connection to the book of Exodus a little bit early on, where it has to do with God's promise for Israel to be a kingdom of priests. And in Leviticus, it looks a little bit different. So Dylan, what's the deal with God's promise in Exodus 19? And what's the deal with the priests we end up with in Leviticus, which I'm sure we're all pretty aware of? Yeah, that's a great question and one that I kind of already alluded to in uh, talking about the structure of the book. But if you guys remember all the way back in Exodus 19, we talked about this a bunch of length. And if you haven't listened to that episode, I'd highly recommend listening to the episode on Exodus 19. It's one of the most important episodes we'll probably do in the Hebrew Bible. But the idea is this. All the way back in Exodus 19, we argued that the logic of the narrative, the way it's worded, all of that, suggests that when the people got to the mountain, Mount Sinai, all the way back in Exodus 3, God had said to Moses, get my people, take them out of Egypt, bring them to Sinai, uh, bring them to the promised land. But before you get to the promised land, bring them to Sinai. That's what I was trying to go with that. So basically, you have as your first goal, Sinai, and then as the second goal, you have the promised land. But when he says, come to Sinai, he says that you all will worship on Sinai. It's a plural you, y'all, will worship on Sinai. And then into Exodus 19, God says, I want you to be a kingdom of priests. And then he calls them up the mountain, but they don't go. Instead, they send Moses. And so all of a sudden, we get this weird swap where they're no longer going to be a kingdom of priests, but a kingdom with priests. And so now you have this distinction between the priestly class and everybody else. I'll call them the lay people. Okay, so you have the priests and the lay people, and only the priests and Moses are the ones who are able to act as intermediaries on behalf of the people. So instead of the people going up the mountain and meeting face-to-face with God as they were called to do initially, the result of their disobedience is that they need to go through an intermediary to access Yahweh. 
And so now in the book of Leviticus, what we have, like I already said, the book name being Leviticus, it's named after the ones, the tribe that are called to be the priests, the Levites, being named after them, we have a whole book dedicated to how the priests should operate and how they should facilitate the worshiping of Yahweh. And so instead of having everybody be a kingdom of priests, we now have a priestly class and a book for the priests dictating how the worship of Yahweh should be facilitated. So that's where we're at going into Leviticus. Corey, anything else before we jump in? Yeah, and I just want to clarify why I even brought that up. We did a great explanation, but we should be bringing this up because the people went up Mount Sinai, there'd be no need for the tabernacle. And if the people went up Mount Sinai, we're all kingdom of priests, there'd be no need for the book of Leviticus. So we're in this scenario. We're going through Leviticus because of the disobedience on top of the mountain. And Dylan just did a great job of explaining that. That's a great point, though, you brought up. Yeah, definitely a good one to keep in mind. Yeah. And so now from here, let's just go into Leviticus. We're going to go pretty fast through the different offerings. We're going to go a little bit slower through the first offering in Leviticus chapter 1, which is the burnt offering. And a lot of the other offerings will follow suit. So in chapter 1, in verse 3, it starts talking about the different types of offerings you can bring for a burnt offering. First of all, whenever Leviticus or uh, different books after this talk about bringing an offering from the herd, it means a bull. And it asks that you bring a male without blemish to the tent to be accepted before Yahweh. And when you bring your bull to the tent, you lay your hands on the head of the bull to make atonement for oneself. And you kill the bull before Yahweh. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall throw the blood against the altar and the tent. And then they will flay the meat into pieces, arrange the wood on the altar. And we talked a lot about the word tree in Hebrew a lot. That Hebrew word is eights. This is you put eights on there. And that's kind of like a hyperlink back to when Abraham goes up the mountain with his son Isaac, puts wood or eights down, kill his son Isaac on. So here we got that all that kind of atonement, sacrificial language going on here. And then it talks about how you must clean the animal. You take out the entrails and you wash them. The legs must be washed with water. And the priest will burn all those things just mentioned on the altar. And all of it will be a food offering and a pleasing aroma to Yahweh. And the same thing will be said, well, if you bring an offering from the flock, which is sheep or goats, you kill it on the certain side of the altar. In this case, it's the north side. And everything else is the same as the bull. Or let's say you can only afford a bird. So if you bring an offering of a bird, it's either a turtle dove or a pigeon. And the priest shall bring it to the altar, wring its head off. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. You remove the crop and all these different bird types of contents on the side of the altar, the east side, which is the place for ashes, we find out. And then it says to tear it open by its wings, but not sever it completely. Um, And so we're seeing already a bunch of hyperlinks going backwards. So you arrange the wood to put your sacrifice on. Oh, yeah, like what Abraham did to Isaac. Tear an animal open by its wings. We see this detail in Genesis chapter 15, verse 10, when God tells Abraham right before he makes his unconditional covenant with him, says, oh, go ahead and get a heifer, a female goat, a ram, a pigeon and a turtle dove. Oh, interesting. That's like all the different types of offerings you can bring for a burnt offering. 
And God says to cut all the animals in halves, but there's this really interesting detail in Genesis, but don't cut the birds. Right? So it's severed, but not completely. We see that somehow, you know, Abraham is following the sacrificial laws in Leviticus. So God was instructing Abraham the same way that he's now instructing his people. And just a little thing to keep in mind that Genesis was written after Sinai. Once the people are hearing, you know, and reading the story of Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, it's all happened after those events took place, right? And so when they get to Abraham, it's like, oh, yeah, he's doing these things the way that God instructs. It's just is pretty cool that God just continues to do things the same way. And those little details are inserted in before. So like when we get through the Bible and go back to the beginning, we'll notice like, oh, all these things are alluding to later spots. And those later spots are alluding back to here. So that's one point. The other point I want to bring up with this offering and many of the offerings like it is that to offer animals is a brutal, brutal process. And I think that's the way God intended it to show that although this is a burnt offering, we still see that this burnt offering makes atonement for people. These different offerings make us right before God. We learned in Genesis chapter 3 that sin leads to death. And right after Adam and Eve sinned, God made them skins out of animals. So literally animals were killed right after sin to cover the shame of the people. And now, again, nothing new. Uh, we have animals covering the sin of the people. In this case, these animals are literally dying for the people who deserve death as punishment for their sins. And so as people are, are going through this process and you know, having to clean out these entrails and flay these animals, they're reminded with just how ugly, horrendous, and vile sin is. I think today we don't have this great disgust of sin that these sacrifices probably put in the people. It's sometimes hard to be thankful for the sacrifice of Jesus. Well, maybe it would be if we were there, if we saw it. Sometimes we do understand it, but a lot of times it could be easy to be like, oh yeah, whatever, like say it. Oh, it's just this little slip up. It's not a big deal. Oh, it's just a little, you know, stealing from this big movie company. I could steal this. It's not a big deal. But if every little sin cost it an animal, we'd be like, oh, shoot, like, I don't want to put a bunch of blood on my hands. And, you know, in the same way, like, oh, shoot, all these little sins put Christ on the cross. I don't want to say it's worth it for Christ to suffer for this little sin. And so that's what these different offerings are going to be doing making sin and the lesson of sin leads to death ever so present and vivid in the scarlet red bloodstained hands of the people as they're doing these offerings. Really heavy. Anything else before I move on, Dylan? Honestly, no, I think that that was a very uh, concise and succinct way to explain that. That is definitely an incredibly good point. And it's just so interesting to me kind of on a little sidebar here, the fact that the necessity of the gospel is made so evident in the Hebrew Bible. You would not have an understanding of the need or the work of Christ if not for the setup, in a sense, that you are given in the Hebrew Bible. And so what Corey just explained does lead directly into that thought process. And so that was definitely a really good way to put that so if you want to go ahead and just kind of hop through the remaining offerings that are mentioned, and then we can kind of jump back into the narrative once we hit that in chapter eight. What do you think? Yeah, sounds good. And so getting into the next offering, chapter two is the grain offering. And pretty much every single grain offering has to do a some mixture of flour, oil, 
and frankincense. And usually grain offerings go with burnt offerings. And so here they're talked about one after another. These things are given to the priests. And in fact, verse 3, there's going to be a bunch of this offering that's burnt, but then the rest is for the priests. It's the most holy part of the offering. This is almost like, a, I guess you could think of it like a tithe of food. Um, so it's for the Lord. It's burnt up part of it. And also, although it's still for the Lord, it's for the Lord's servants, the priests. Um, and it's, you know, baked in the oven and then the priest will get to eat of it. It's holy for Aaron and his sons. And so it's really important to realize that this thing, although it's just some loaf of bread, it's really holy. It's set apart for God, set apart for God's holy servants, the priests. Then we uh, see this really important verse that's, you know, the rest of scripture talks about this, that no grain offering shall have leaven in it, nor shall you burn honey. So it's really important that these holy loaves of bread have no leaven, nothing to make it rise. So these are flat cakes. Right. And so for the rest of scripture, we'll see all sorts of different allusions to leaven and bread, or even Jesus says things like beware of the leaven of the Pharisees or a little bit of leaven in the dough will make a whole thing corrupt. So watch out for it. Then we get to this offering of first fruits. And it says that the first fruits shall be offered not on the altar as a pleasing aroma, unlike the burnt offering. You're going to season with salt, the salt of the covenant shall not be missing, which is a really interesting point that salt is something really important to God's covenant offerings here. The salt of the covenant, something holding on, and we talk about salt being something that is preserving against rot and death. So the salt of the covenant, something really important, apparently to God. And then you put oil and frankincense on it, and the priest shall burn it. Some is a moral proportion, is a food offering to Yahweh. So Kind of the same thing, but there's some sort of difference between a grain offering and a offering of first fruits. Give your best to the Lord. And then we have a peace offering, which sounds like what it is. It's for you to have peace between you and God. And again, there's different types of offerings from the herd or from the flock or a goat. Yeah, just like in the burnt offering. Some important detail that comes out in chapter 3 in verse 17, that it is a statute forever not to eat the fat or drink the blood. We saw this back in Genesis 9. God tells Noah after the flood, you can now eat animals, but do not drink the lifeblood or it is Yahweh's. Okay, so the blood is equal to the life of the animal. Although it seems like, oh, we're taking the life of the animal by killing it. God says really to take the life would be to drink the blood. So have nothing to do with drinking blood. And actually, that's something that was so important to the apostles in Acts chapter 15. Like, okay, what's uh, something really important we should be telling Gentile disciples of Christ about? Well, we could think of a few things. And one of those really important things they thought to list was don't drink the blood of animals. Yeah, very important still today. And so we go on from there. A sin offering in chapter 4. The sin offering is definitely the most detailed of all the offerings. If you read through the sin offering, you'll get a really good sense of all the others. But the sin offering, in its great detail, talks a lot about how the priests are really involved. So, again, the person bringing the sacrifice puts their hands on the head, and the priest takes the blood, sprinkles it on the tent. The priest dips his finger in the blood and goes into the sanctuary and sprinkles it seven times before Yahweh. And the priests have put blood on the horns of the altar. 
And so we see that blood is really significant in atoning for sins. And after we have all the same types of killing, filleting, removing kidneys and burning those things, it talks about different types of sin offerings down like chapters 13 through 35 at the end of the chapter. So it starts out with if the whole congregation sins unintentionally. Well, if you got through Exodus, like, well, that's bound to happen again, I'm sure. You offer a bull from the herd. The priest shall make atonement for them and they shall be forgiven. So this priest has this great role of making atonement for the people. So we see there in that case for the whole congregation or even if just the leader sins, the priest is the one who makes atonement for them when they offer a male goat. Or if a common person sins, same thing, they offer a female goat. And the same line is repeated that the priest shall make atonement for their sins or for his sins, that single person who brought it. So the sin offering is this really cool look into atonement. And what the priest does is this middleman taking on the sins of the people, atoning for the sins and being able to then go before Yahweh and be blameless. And this really cool transfer of sin onto the animal, symbolically putting hands on top of the head. Really cool. And, and something else that's cool about this sin offering, it continues in the chapter 5. and chapter 5, verses 7 through 10, it says, If you can't afford a lamb, bring two turtle doves. So be made clean from sins to have your sins atoned for. It has nothing to do with wealth or riches. Anyone can do this. God makes a way for everyone to be able to come to him. So it's just really cool. As we have seen, we'll continue to see through God's Torah that he will always make a way for his people. He'll even make these strange little laws that are like peripheral to a lot of us where he cares about slaves to a culture that cares nothing about slaves. He'll care about women to a culture that does not make special rules for women and their rights. So very just powerful stuff from God, caring for all sorts of people's and the last offering is the guilt offering. And again, this is this to be made atone for your guilt before God. And it talks about like a few specific sins. Like if you commit a breach of faith against the Lord by deceiving your neighbor or robbing someone or you oppress your neighbor or you found something lost and lied about it. These are different offerings you can make. And these are how you restore things that maybe you've stolen. Well, you add a fifth to it. You bring compensation to Yahweh in some way. The priest makes atonement for you and you shall be forgiven. And so here we get this through the guilt offering, unlike the other offerings, this idea of redemption and second chances and to make things right. And then I know we said we're going through chapter seven, but really from chapter six, verse eight through the end of seven, it's a reiteration of the offerings. We're not going to go through that, but if you want to do a quick run through of these different offerings, um, you can read from chapter 6, 8 through the end of chapter 7. And I'll give you a good quick recap of them all. How do we do, Dylan? Pretty spot on, pretty solid. I do have some stuff to add, but it's nothing that was skipped. It's just for my own interest in adding these because I think that they really do serve to highlight stuff that's going to come up. One is I really wanted to go back and focus a little bit more on when we're talking about the sin offering, you'll notice that it says if the whole congregation sins even unintentionally. And I wanted to draw attention to that fact because it is exceedingly important. The idea that sin is something that can happen willfully 
but also something that can happen unintentionally, but nonetheless is still categorized as sin. And so that's something that I think that we might have to grapple with, particularly as 21st century Christians, where we really have this idea that our intentions are what classifies something as right or wrong, rather than if God says it's wrong, it's wrong regardless of our intentions in doing it. So if we do it and it's classified as wrong, it's wrong regardless of our intentions. And so I think that that was something that's really interesting that I pulled out of that idea of the fact that you can sin unintentionally, you can not even realize that it's wrong in this instance, and nonetheless, it's still wrong. Again, the whole purpose of Leviticus is to highlight the fact that Yahweh is a holy God. He is completely different and wholly set apart from that which is ordinary. And as a result, he needs to be worshipped on his terms which is ultimately the entire point of not only Leviticus, but the Hebrew Bible as a whole. Nonetheless, as Corey pointed out, and something else I wanted to focus on briefly, is God's grace. So you have these two things that kind of are held in tension. You have the idea that God is a holy God. God, because he's a holy God, has no patience for sin. But simultaneously, God is a gracious God. So even though God is a holy God, that sin, any amount of it, even if it's unintentional, completely flies in the face of what it means to be a holy God and actually be with sinners, God is still gracious and long-suffering. We've talked about that from Exodus, God's long nose. He's slow to anger. And as a result, he shows grace to his people. And so one thing that we often get caught up in in reading law code literature and going through these laws is, especially as Christians, we get this idea that these are strict rules and regulations that must be followed on penalty of death, which to some degree, that's true for some of them. We do see instances where God literally says, if you do not follow this, or if you do this wrong thing, it will be punishable by death. But God is also a gracious God. These rules are instructions. Again, we've talked about that multiple times, the idea that the word Torah that's the Hebrew word for these five books, is best translated as instruction. These are instructions given to the people so as to make them holy and to give them godly wisdom that they can follow. The major crux of the biblical issue is that humans desire to follow their own wisdom and to seize autonomy for themselves. God says, no, you need to obey me, but in obeying me, you will be blessed and have true wisdom that is the wisdom that comes from God. So God is continually gracious to his people. He makes a way for his people to come to him and doesn't overly burden them. And he goes, and like Corey said, he makes laws that govern and help slaves or women, people that wouldn't have been valued perhaps in this culture. He makes it so that his people can come to him instead of making it so his people are completely outcast because of the weight of their sin, which is an amazing fact that God is so gracious. So wanted to point those two things out real quick and focus on them just a little bit more. But with that, let's let's jump back in to the narrative. So now we've gone through seven chapters of law code and a good chunk of the ending of Exodus is also law code. And so just because there's law code doesn't necessarily mean that this isn't part of a story. Okay, so God gives law code, as we've already said in other previous podcasts, there's this interesting pattern. And the pattern is this. Basically, you have God call people up to the mountain, people rebel. Therefore, people receive law code. Then God says, follow me. 
and people rebel and they receive more law code. God says, follow me. People rebel and receive more law code. And you see where this pattern is going. Basically, every time people rebel, they incur more rules, more instruction to get them in line. It's not a result of people saying, oh yeah, we'll follow Yahweh. And then God just drowning them with all of these rules. Instead, every time people rebel, God gives them rules to draw them back to himself. And so that's kind of the purpose of what's going on. And so it plays into the overall working of the story in that sense. And so then jumping into chapter eight, we're going to see kind of the continuation of that story in Moses making offerings for Aaron. So if you remember, Aaron has been set up as the high priest. And so what we have is we have the Levites who have been selected as the priestly tribe. Both Moses and Aaron are Levites. We know that from Exodus 1. Aaron has been selected as the high priest. So Aaron and his descendants are the priests of priests, basically. They're the ones who not only make atonement for the other uh, priests, but make atonement for the nation as a whole. They're the ones who are, we're going to find, they're the ones who are able to enter the most holy place in the tabernacle, we'll get there in a little bit. And so basically, there's a great burden and responsibility on Aaron and his sons. But interestingly, we're going to see Moses making offerings on behalf of Aaron, the high priest, and his sons. One other weird thing, though, in this section, that is chapter 8, is the fact that Moses doesn't make atonement for himself. He does make atonement for Aaron and his sons so that they can serve in the role of the high priest. But for some reason, there's no need for Moses to make atonement for himself, which is kind of an interesting fact. Corey, do you have anything else to add about chapter eight? Yeah, again, if you're having any sort of hesitancy about our earlier comment that without the disobedience in Exodus 19, there'd be no need for the tabernacle, no need for Leviticus. But look at Moses. This is case in point. He doesn't need to make these offerings. Well, he went up the mountain. He talked face to face with God. And I think that's just such a powerful truth and maybe something to look into more and, and muse about. Like why the heck doesn't Moses need to make atonement for himself or have someone else need make atonement for himself? Yeah, just a, a great point to bring up and something that we should continue to question and dive into deeper. And so we see in the chapter nine, Aaron makes acceptable offerings for the priests and for the people. And she'd be like, oh, like a, a sigh of relief almost. Something, you know, kind of interesting here in uh, chapter nine, verse one, it starts out with by talking on the eighth day, Moses called Aaron. So the seventh day is Sabbath. Eighth day is a pretty significant marker of time. It's used a whole lot, Old Testament, and quite a bit in the New Testament as well. Kind of going back to in the creation account, at the end of the seventh day, there was no evening or morning. There was no true lasting rest. Hebrews goes on and on about this in chapters three and four. You know, Moses wasn't able to bring them rest. Joshua wasn't able to bring them rest. We're waiting for a true rest and a true rest bringer. We're looking forward to the day where the eighth day is a continued rest from that seventh day rest. And so it's a fun little thing to be looking out for is how does scripture mark time? We're used to fairy tales using things like, and once upon a time, well, I know where I'm at and what kind of genre of story I'm in. Eighth day, significant. The third day is significant in scripture as well. And they go on from there. Aaron makes acceptable sacrifices. Down towards the end of the chapter, 
Last verse of the chapter, verse 24. And fire came out from before Yahweh and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. And I think that's a good reaction. So yeah, truly good offerings were made. Yahweh accepted it. In true Yahweh fashion, amazing burning fire coming out and consuming stuff and terrifying leaves the people in awe and terror. <laughs> Fun little fact that the word awful, we use it to today to talk about terrible things. Um, it used to be something like extremely awesome, although awesome has also lost its luster, but like this would be something described as awful, just leaving you in awe. But then people realized when God did awful things, it left people terrified. The word just started to be used as things that were, well, how we use it, awful. Um, but yeah, it's just leaving the people in awe and terror. And so chapter 9, pretty quick little recap, but again, really significant to the story. We're in this section, chapters 8 through 10, where we're talking about ordination of the priests. And although we're with this not so great line of priests. We started with the Levites. The Levites are one of the tribes that went and killed the whole town and tribe of Shechem back in Genesis. And so far, Aaron, one of his last mentions in Exodus, he made a big shiny cow for the people to worship and called it Yahweh. Uh, now Aaron truly does what is right. Yahweh rewards that, accepts his offering, and things are looking really good. How do things go from there, Dylan? Yeah. And real quick to build on that things looking real good thing. I'm not sure if you pointed this out or not, but verse 23 and Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. Uh, and there you have the solution or the resolution to the problem that was presented at the end of Exodus. And so remember at the end of Exodus, Moses could not go into the tent of meeting, into the tabernacle. God had to speak to him from within it, but Moses was outside of it. Now, they're going inside. So their offerings are accepted. Things are going well. They're able to enter into this tent of meeting where God's presence is dwelling. We call that episode where we talked about the tabernacle, God in a box, because God literally has come down and confined himself to a box to dwell with his people. Things are looking up until they aren't in chapter 10. So in chapter 10, first couple verses, we see now, Nadab and Abihu, who are they? Well, it says, the sons of Aaron. So, based on what I've already said, what do we know about the sons of Aaron? They're the high priests, right? So, Aaron's the high priest in his lineage. And so, these guys are priests in the order of Aaron, important dudes, okay? Each of them, so that is Nadab and Abihu, each took a censer, and they put fire in it, and had incense on it, and offered, here's the word, unauthorized fire before Yahweh. So what have we come to realize as a result of reading through the first seven chapters? Well, what we've come to realize is that Yahweh is very particular about how his people come and approach him. Because as I've already said multiple times, and I'll continue to point out, the fact that Yahweh is a holy God. He is different and distinct and completely other than anything that is ordinary, and as a result has a very strict way in which he demands to be worshipped. And so they offer unauthorized fire before him. It specifically says, which he had not commanded them. So because of this, as a result, fire comes out from before Yahweh and consumes Nadab and Abihu, and they die before Yahweh. So 
everything's hunky-dory. We have the inauguration of the priests. The offerings are accepted. We have Aaron and Moses being able to enter the tabernacle finally after the problem that we're left with in Exodus. And then the high priest's sons offer incorrectly before Yahweh and are killed as a result. So going back to kind of my earlier spiel, the idea is that God is a gracious God. And now you might be after reading this tempted to say, well, uh, I don't see that. But it really is the case that God does consistently make concessions for his people to make his people able to come before him. As I just said, he confines himself to a box to dwell with his people, even after his people completely reject him in Genesis 3. Even after his people reject him in Genesis 3, God says that there is going to be somebody that's going to come and rectify this situation. That's the first instance where we start looking for this Messiah figure that's going to come and fix this. But until that time, God selects for himself a people. And from that people, he says, I am going to make your name great because everybody else, the whole rest of the world, they're seeking to make their own name great. But God is going to make Abraham and his people their name great. All they have to do follow the stipulations of the covenant. Keep God's commands and they'll be blessed. However, they are not keeping God's commands already right here. Chapter 10, they fail to keep God's commands yet again. And as a result, Adab and Abihu are obliterated. And so this leads into this interesting section now where we see this interesting exchange between Aaron and Moses. Okay. And so based on the law code that we've already talked about so far, so we know that this offering is given to Aaron and that him and the Levites, they're supposed to eat of the various offering. And that in so doing, it's actually ceremonially significant that they eat of these offerings. However, we see farther down in chapter 10 that Aaron, as a result of having his sons killed, refuses to eat the offering, stating that instead he opts not to do this because he is in mourning. And so this leads us with this weird, interesting sort of situation where Moses is going up and being angry at Aaron and saying, Aaron, you have failed to do that which you're supposed to do. However, Aaron rebuttals against Moses and says, no, this is why I did it as a result of my mourning. And so interestingly, at the end, we have Moses kind of relenting and saying, oh, I see your point. And then that's kind of that. And so it's left for us to puzzle over what is the significance of the inclusion here? Again, pointing out the fact that all of these books were written by human authors, right? And then in the human author writing the book, he specifically puts in the book that which is important to make his point. It's not like there's superfluous information in here. So what could this be pointing to? And so Corey and I were kind of tossing this around a little bit before we started recording as to why we thought this was included. I'll let uh, Corey jump in here and kind of give our answer that we came up with. And so there's some people who will say it is Aaron's job to judge between what is clean and not clean. And so Aaron is just doing his job. But we saw that in between the death of Aaron's sons and Moses and Aaron's talk at the end of the chapter in between, a couple guys, Michelle and Eleazar, cousins of the dead, they actually carry out the bodies. So Aaron and his sons, who are still alive, who didn't eat the burnt offering, they're not unclean to do their task. In fact, it was really important and stated um, a few times that priests should not 
stop doing their work, right? So if you know someone dies, they still have to serve. They can't put on sackcloth and ashes. They can't take off these holy priestly garments. Moses specifically instructs them in this chapter not to get drunk with your mourning. I think the key to really understanding this exchange and why the text, well, in my Bible, the ESV, and it says when Moses heard Aaron's explanation, he approved of it. But if you look into the Hebrew, and it's pretty easy to, to go and do quick little word studies in the original language. If you have the computer software or the phone app, Logos, that's Greek. It's pronounced Logos. I just got to say that for Dylan. We'll mention it later. But uh, Or any other Greekies out there. Um, if you get Bible software Logos, you can click on a word, see what the original Hebrew is, and see how did they choose to interpret this and translate it. And so... In the original Hebrew, this phrase actually is, it was good in Moses' eyes. And this is hyperlinks to all sorts of different places throughout Scripture. And every time that this is mentioned, we've seen that it's a cue that this is not what is right in God's eyes. right? So when something is right in the eyes of a human, and we don't see how God reacts, it's usually a bad thing. So there's a couple different options here. Is Aaron doing a good job of showing wisdom and discernment as a priest amidst this death of his sons? Or was he really wrong here? And Moses is satisfied, but yet doesn't consult the Lord. Or is there just, you know, maybe even some third really uncomfortable alternative where like, well, I guess it was okay for him to mourn at this point. I, I feel like those are like the three main options and how to interpret this is still a very weird passage but for us the fact that it's right in Moses's eyes and Yahweh isn't consulted Yahweh doesn't say anything about it and just goes on to the next section I feel like we're to be a little disappointed we should be leaning that way at least but again read through that section yourself and really study those things that's just our interpretation do not blindly trust us. Just hopefully th these things we're teaching will, will help foster the right questions to ask and how to go deeper. Because sometimes, you know, it's hard to even know what questions to ask Bible passage. Well, now you know that there is some sort of problem at the end of chapter 10. Maybe you didn't think so, but look deeper. Um, and that's really all I got to say on this section, Dylan. You got anything more to add? No, I think that's a great final thing to say. Like Corey said, the purpose of this podcast isn't to tout our own knowledge on the passages for you guys to blindly believe, but instead, Corey and I are very much subject to being wrong on any number of things. And so instead of blindly accepting what we have to say, just like Corey said, go and look into these things yourself. The purpose of this podcast is to basically highlight and show the story unfold in real time so that you guys can have a deeper understanding in going through that story and how that can impact your own Bible study and Bible reading. So definitely uh, don't take our word for it. Read your Bibles, look into it for yourselves. So let's go ahead and wrap up there. I think that's a great point. Guys, thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you guys did enjoy the episode, usual stuff at the end. Right here we have a website, www.thebibleisastory.com. Dot com. There you'll find other resources, blog, YouTube channel, etc. Corey has a new blog post that he is finishing up. And so that's going to be up on there soon. So stay tuned for that. 
Also, other things to be aware of, if you do enjoy the podcast, leaving a review does help out tremendously because it helps other people see the podcast and therefore be able to listen to it. So if you enjoy it, if it blesses you, go ahead and leave a review on wherever you listen. It doesn't really matter. Leave a positive review. That's really helpful. Finally, if you'd like to support the show, you can do that on our website by hitting donate. You can also be praying for the show consistently because that is a tremendous blessing. And lastly, if you want to talk with us, the email address is scripturechronicles at gmail.com. Guys, thank you once more for tuning in. Join us next week as we continue into Leviticus. With that, shalom, shalom adios. adios.